All right, so that's what's going on. Tonight we are in Ezekiel 21, as Gino mentioned. So open your Bible there to verse 18. Ezekiel 21, 18 through 32, that's our plan. Anybody who watches movies loves to quote dialogue from iconic films. Everyone has quoted, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse, from, well, from The Godfather. That was a little bit of audience. This is why we don't do more participation with the audience. Or, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, from... All right, there you go. Now, I have one that our family has used over the years in certain situations. It may not be familiar to you. I want you to see if you can recognize it. Don't shout it out uh, if you know it. And it's not fair if you read the transcript already and you know it. (laughs) The bones tell me nothing. How many from scratch you just know what that... Not you. The The bones tell me nothing. Anybody recognize that from a very groundbreaking movie? It was. All right, somebody shout it out. Who knows then? Oh, no one even read the transcript. That's it. I'm done. (laughs) The bones tell me nothing is a quote from uh, early in the 1988 movie Willow. Directed by Ron Howard, produced and co-written by George Lucas. Uh, it was groundbreaking because it was the first movie that used the kind of a morphing technology where, you know, on screen uh, things morphed. Anyway, uh, the ma- <laughs> once you've explained something, that's as far as you can go. The main character, Willow Uffgood, is a Nelwyn. He's a little person on a quest to protect a special human baby from a tyrannical queen. Early in the movie, the High Aldwin, or sorcerer, played by Billy Barty, needs to make an important decision. He tells everyone, I must consult the bones. And then he shakes a bag of bones and he throws them out. Uh, He means to practice divination using them. But after he throws the bones, he secretly tells Willow, the bones tell me nothing. Because it's all show. It's, he's not, you know, it's not really sorcery. He's just faking people out. Uh, and the bones have no real power to divine anything. And so uh, I, I can't think of a situation right now. But every now and then the bones tell me nothing is a great line. So let's start using that in our, you know, kind of our internal dialogue. Go ahead, make my night. But anyway... In our text tonight, King, King somebody, you know, I've been trying to figure out, maybe some of you who do software programming, I want to write a program that, so with one keystroke, I can put Nebuchadnezzar in my notes, because it's so tedious to write his name. Anyway, in our text tonight, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon practices divination, To make an important decision, we'll see God overrules the results to accomplish His divine providence. Verse 18, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. 
Now, Ezekiel is being called upon to draw some sort of sketch of the road from Babylon to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Jerusalem. It's a visual representation to say that Nebuchadnezzar was coming to execute judgment upon both cities from the north. He just didn't know which one to hit first. It's tough being a despot with an incredible army. You just don't know which way to go. Who, who am I going to destroy first? Rabbah of the Ammonites or Jerusalem in Judah? And so Ezekiel's called to draw this out. Uh, it, it's interesting too. Early on when uh, technology first started to encroach into the church, you know, and the, we started using screens and PowerPoint and stuff like that, a lot of people were against that. You know, that can't be spiritual. God doesn't need that and all that. Ezekiel would have used PowerPoint if he had it. He, or actually, he would have used Keynote on a Mac. But, uh, but, I mean, that's essentially, Ezekiel is a prop guy, and he's, at least he would have used a whiteboard. Because he's, he's, he's drawing this out and acting this out and showing them what's going to happen. So he's got this little map from MapQuest or something, you know, and then there's the fork in the road and the sword and all. And, and now the idea is where is Nebuchadnezzar going to go first? Now, the Jews in Jerusalem had tried to ally with the Ammonites against Babylon about 593 B.C. It, again, was a foolish alliance that would bring serious repercussions upon both cities. Remember that Jeremiah had been telling the, uh, the Israelites in Judah, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. It won't be that bad. You're going to be disciplined. God has to put you into captivity for 70 years for many reasons, but you shouldn't resist. You should, you should do that and everything. But instead, they continued to try and make alliances to throw off the yoke of Babylon. And now Nebuchadnezzar was coming. Alliances carry consequences. Be careful in business and even in friendships. I mean, you don't have to become outwardly paranoid. But I think a little inward paranoia is good for a Christian. In the sense of what... What kind of a relationship am I likely to form with this person? Uh, you know, am I, you know, obviously we're to be in the world, not of the world. It does, you know, we don't want to withdraw from the world and not have non-believing friends or any contact with non-believers. That's weird. But we have to be careful about the relationships and, and how, whether we're influencing them or they're influencing us. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, and especially for children and those of you who are raising children, uh, you absolutely have the right to choose your children's friends. Uh, it, there's, you know, it's, it's not, the last time I read through the Constitution and the amendments, there's nothing in there about your children being able to choose their own friends. Uh, you know, that's up to you based on uh, a lot of other factors and stuff. So just be careful. Alliances carry consequences. Uh, and and uh, that can be a good thing. As we get to know people, as Greg was talking about, and you have a relationship with people and then you can share the Lord with them, but it can also be something that drags you down. So have good alliances out there in the world. Have as your goal leading people to Christ or representing Christ to them, even Christians, uh, and especially Christians, be careful there because you know, a lot of times Christian relationships always start off on a high plane and then they have a tendency sometimes to deteriorate as you get to know each other better. Actually, they should grow rather than deteriorate. So just bear that in mind, alliances. Verse 21, For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the images, he looks at the liver. Now we call this kind of thing divination. One definition of divination is this, 
The attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of a standardized process or ritual. Diviners ascertain their interpretations of how a questioner should proceed by reading signs, events, or omens, or through alleged contact with a supernatural agency. Forms of divination common to our culture would be astrology, cards like tarot cards, palm reading, numerology, and the ever-popular Ouija board. Uh, Believe it or not, there is now also something called cybermancy. It's a form of divination utilizing computers. Now, these are usually divination programs, but they may include reference materials such as programs which track the phase of the moon, which uh, practitioners of ritual magic need for timing of their spells and such. Astrologers have long used computers to create their charts. And so it's a, it's a new exciting field in the world of, uh, of divination, you know, using the computer. But uh, uh, if you look online and see, you know, look up divination and there's all kinds of means uh, more common to different cultures uh, using animal parts and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, now, Nebuchadnezzar employed the common means of 6th century Babylonian divination. First, there was the process of making arrows with names on them, placing them in a quiver, whirling them about, and the first one to fall out was the answer from the God that you were invoking. Second, we're told here that he used images, or we would call them idols, uh, I'm not sure how they answered. It was probably more like the casting of lots. Some were ca- they were cast and some meant one thing and some meant another. Uh, third, the liver of a dead sheep was examined and uh, a sacrificed sheep. And the answer from your God was determined by uh, analyzing the color and any peculiar markings of the liver. Uh, and so those, those were the three... Uh, or at least three common means of divination in Babylon at that time. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar employed all three methods and they all gave him the same result. They all pointed him towards the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, he, He was told by these signs, he believed, to go to Jerusalem first. And that's what he did. Verse 22, In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams, to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound, and to build a wall. Now, Ezekiel somehow represented the advance of the Babylonian armies along the road to Jerusalem and the siege of Jerusalem. Again, he was a master with props. It would be like Ezekiel light and magic, you know, uh, instead of industrial light and magic. You know, I'm, I'm I'm into this movie reference tonight. So you can laugh, you can sit there, you can do whatever you want. But anyway, uh, he was, is he, I'm fascinated with Ezekiel. I mean, Ezekiel is just, uh, you know, he's just 100% into this stuff uh, and he's showing them this visual and he's representing the army and he's building these siege mounds and it's just fantastic. Verse 23, and it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them. But he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. Now, this means that the residents of Jerusalem thought of Nebuchadnezzar's use of divination as something false that God would not honor. A lot of times when Ezekiel was doing something, the people just didn't receive it. And so he was uh, 
you know, exampling for them and illustrating for them that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and he was going to divine which way to go and that he was going to end up coming towards Jerusalem. And the, the, the Jews were saying, well, that's not going to happen because God wouldn't allow that. To, he wouldn't allow some pagan king to use divination, which he has condemned, showing him to come and, and destroy us. And so they just don't believe Ezekiel at all. They say it's false. Uh, since Nebuchadnezzar is appealing to false and forbidden practices, the God of Israel is going to stop him before he gets to Jerusalem. But the answer to that is uh, no, <laughs> not going to happen. Those who have sworn oaths seems to refer to the Jews trusting in their covenant relationship with Jehovah to save them even though they were walking in iniquity and practicing open idolatry themselves. As I explained a week or so ago, just because Israel was God's elect nation, it did not mean you were automatically saved. It didn't give you a free pass to sin against God's revealed word and will. Throughout Israel's history, only a remnant were saved, those who believed God and to whom God accounted it as personal righteousness to them. And so the enigma of these people was that they knew they were in sin. They were practicing open sin. As we read earlier in these chapters, they set up idols in the temple itself. They were out in the high places. They were practicing all kinds of abominable practices. But when you suggested to them that God might judge them for it by using the Babylonians, they said, that's not going to happen because Nebuchadnezzar is a... You know, he's a pagan who uses divination, and so that, Ezekiel, you're just all wet. And, and what Ezekiel is saying is, God is going to work in this way, through this man, using these methods, uh, because that's how far you've sunk. Now, God didn't use divination. He didn't condone it uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. He overruled it to accomplish his purposes on the earth. There are multiple scriptures warning believers against the use of any form of divination. Let me just read Deuteronomy 18:10 through 14 as an example. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Punishment was severe. Leviticus 20:27. 20, a man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. And so these were serious issues. Uh, stay away from all that stuff. Even as an entertainment, be very careful with these kinds of things. Now, we have liberty. We don't have the liberty to engage in anything specifically prohibited by Scripture. Remember when we were going through 1 Corinthians, in that section there where Paul talked about liberty and <clears throat> you know the things we can and can't do as Christians. We have liberty, but liberty doesn't mean you can do things that are specifically prohibited. Those are, those are, if something is sin, you don't have the liberty to do it just because you feel mature and like you can handle it. But in these gray areas, we have liberty. And so I can't give you a list of movies or books or television programs that you can and cannot watch. 
I am, however, going to encourage you to think hard about anything that you watch, uh, and especially things that involve the supernatural, and especially if you have children. Again, because children are very impressionable, uh, and, um, you know, it's just, just think about it. And if you can think about it, and you've prayed it through, and you can give a rational spiritual argument, then go for it. And you might want to be a little bit careful about telling other people what you watch and what you don't watch just so you don't stumble people. Uh, you know, that's just my personal advice. Uh, you'd be surprised how easy it is to stumble somebody who thinks who, he doesn't have a liberty in one area to watch something or to read something or to go somewhere or to do something or to practice something. And then they find out that you're all over it. It's your favorite thing to do. And next thing you know, they're drawn into it. Uh, and, and it might be a liberty for you, but it might be something that draws them back into sin. So just think about it uh, and, um, you know, go for it uh, in a way that is Christ-honoring. Now, these next few verses, verses 24 through 27, they're extremely insightful. They mark something very dramatic uh, in Ezekiel's talk to Israel. In verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your doings your sins appear. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day is come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it. To him. Now, verse 24, another announcement of the impending judgment at the hands of Babylon. The profane, wicked prince of Israel in these verses is a reference to Governor Zedekiah, who had been appointed by Babylon over Jerusalem, but who rebelled politically against Nebuchadnezzar, and that rebellion was the final straw in bringing the siege down upon them. It's what comes next in these verses that is kind of amazing to think about. Remove the turban and take off the crown. Now, the turban, or your Bible might say the mitre, M-I-T-R-E, this is the headdress of the high priest. The crown was, of course, the headdress of the king. The priesthood and the kingship were to be overthrown, overthrown, overthrown until he comes whose right it is. And the he is, of course, a reference to the Messiah, to the Savior, the person we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, what these verses declare is that there will be no effective priesthood or king in Israel until the second coming of Jesus Christ when the Father will give it to him. Since the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, there has been no effective priesthood. Yes, there was a temple after that, and priests did serve in it at least up until 70 A.D., when Titus and the Roman legions came and destroyed the temple, uh, and it's been destroyed up until that time. But the, after the Babylonian captivity, they went back, they had their temple, Jesus went into the temple called Herod's temple. That existed, and there were priests, and they ministered. But in that temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant, there was no mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and there was no presence of the glory of God. After the Babylonian captivity, or after Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, all of that ended. You understand that up until that time, in the Holy of Holies, where those art, was that article of furniture, 
the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the very glory of God dwelt in that place. And when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, all of that was gone and it has never come back. And this scripture is saying it won't until it's given to Jesus Christ in his second coming. Now, as we report on Sundays in our prophecy updates, the Temple Institute in Israel has made most of the implements needed in a rebuilt temple. They can now identify genetically the priests. What about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared off the pages of history by the time of the Babylonian captivity. Nothing in the Bible is said about the Ark in the Old Testament after the return from Babylon. The Apocrypha states that the Ark could not be found when the Jewish people built rebuilt the temple at the time of Ezra and Zechariah. The explanation in the Apocrypha was that Jeremiah hid the ark in a cave in Mount Nebo before the Babylonian invasion and that its location would not be revealed until God was ready for it to be found. <clears throat> there are other traditions that it was hidden by the son of Solomon and the queen of Sheba uh, and that it's in Ethiopia. Uh, I've seen pictures of the building where it's supposed to be in Ethiopia. Uh, it, it appeared on film briefly in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <coughs> and now it's in an American warehouse somewhere with all the uh, remains of Area 51. Uh, you know. But anyway, the truth is the Ark disappears off of the pages of history and, and it doesn't come back. And I don't think it's going to, uh, just my personal opinion, because of what God says here through Ezekiel. He says... There's no effective priesthood and no effective monarchy until he whose right it is comes. Uh, and that's, that's pretty heavy when you stop and think about it. The Holy of Holies in the later temples was therefore an empty chamber. When the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 B.C., he demanded the privilege of entering the Holy of Holies. When he did, he came out saying that he could not understand what all the interest was about because it was only an empty room. Uh, a very fascinating history. As far as the kings go, there has been no king from the line of David since Ezekiel spoke these words. And so it's very interesting, uh, the history of Israel. And as I've said before, there will be a rebuilt temple, obviously we know from Daniel in the book of the Revelation, in the tribulation, but it's not going to be an exciting thing. I mean, it's nothing to get excited about. It's not a temple that God is going to inhabit. He's, his glory is not going to dwell there. It's the tribulation temple uh, and the, the Antichrist will go into it halfway into the tribulation and set himself up as God. Uh, the Lord says it's when Jesus comes back, not in his first coming but in his second coming, that these things will have their fulfillment. If you were writing a history of Israel from then till the second coming, its subtitle could be the phrase in verse 26, nothing shall remain the same, exalt the humble and humble the exalted. That's a good subtitle for the history of Israel from uh, the time of Ezekiel forward. Now, the residents of Rabbah must have breathed a sigh of relief when it was reported that the Babylonian armies turned toward Jerusalem. It was but a brief respite for them, however, as we pick up the story in verse 28. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites, concerning their reproach, and say, a sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see false visions for you, while they divine a lie to you to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created. 
in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, the Ammonites were descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot and were thus near relatives to the Jews. Uh, they had their seers, their soothsayers, their diviners, their false prophets, which they are bid to be aware of and cautioned against hearkening to. These told them that they were in the utmost safety and that the king of Babylon would not come against them, or if he did, he would not succeed. The Ammonites thought they had escaped Nebuchadnezzar's judgment, but they would be punished. In God's wrath and fiery anger, he would hand Ammon over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. They're called the invaders of, from the east in Ezekiel 25, verse 4. It's possibly a reference to a nomadic invasion uh, that came through. Until he comes, the Jews are being humbled. History bears out what Ezekiel spoke. We, the church, have our own until he comes, but it's not a reference to the second coming. It's a reference to his imminent coming to resurrect and rapture the church prior to his second coming. And so uh, we say, uh, Maranatha, the Lord come, or our Lord come. Uh, and it's a more uh, joyful, it's a more exciting reference to the coming of the Lord because he could come at any moment to take us home. Meantime, we are his kingdom of priests on the earth, according to the Apostle Peter. And what a priest does is he reveals God to men and he brings men to God. A priest is a person that stands between men and God. We don't really do that in the sense, uh, I mean, Jesus is the only mediator between man and God, but we are able to, to reveal God to men, uh, tell them about Jesus, and we're able to bring men to God. Uh, and what a great and glorious privilege that is as we wait for the return of the Lord for us and then for the unfolding of the rest of these prophetic things. Amen? Amen.